This is Principles in Practice, a Shape of Advice podcast brought to you by Professional Planner and BlackRock. My name is Tan Sharp and I'm the editor of Professional Planner. This series is a conversational style exploration of the different elements of practice management for advisors, drawing on the knowledge and experience of people that contribute to the delivery of advice to Australian consumers. Feel free to visit professionalplanner.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tan Sharp here, editor at Professional Planner. I'm joined by Rob Jones, founder of financial services consultancy Pelton Partners, and Neil Younger, Group CEO and Managing Director at Licensee Fortnum Private Wealth. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tan. Good morning, Neil. We're looking at uh, client pricing today and financial advice, which is, of course, a crucial part of practice management. And I wouldn't say it gets glossed over, but my sense is that the methodology behind pricing is often not as robust as it should be. Neil, I'm fascinated to get your top-down perspective from the licensee view, but I want to start with Rob, as I've heard a lot about the work Peloton does on pricing with advice practices. And I recall a comment you made, Rob, at our best practice forum way back in mid-21, um, about 85% of clients being mispriced. So perhaps you could set the table, Rob, and explain the advice pricing landscape right now and whether that 85% figure still applies. Yeah, great question, Tan. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, I suppose the first point to make is that um, I think you said it in your in your opening there that things are changing, thankfully, around pricing and, and changing for the better. And by that I mean the accuracy is better. Um, and I've got a really simple philosophy, and it's the one that we work work by. It's the one I encourage every single firm that we deal with to work by, and that is to establish and maintain, when you can, the the right and accurate fee for clients, that's fair, and a right and accurate return for the business, that's fair. It's a really simple process, and it's one that's been lost, um, lost in uh, confusion, lost in past practices, uh, pricing frameworks that have been inappropriate, um, and, and we just need to modernise what we're doing. Mm. But to take you back specifically to that time when I said 85% of clients are priced incorrectly, it's even gone higher than that. So we have 23,000 individual client groups across this country that we've priced for advisors. So when I, I use those figures, I, I hope it's coming across that these are validated and verified by us every single time because they're individual clients and the number's actually higher. It's over 90%. And when I say they're mispriced, they're either too low, too high, um, that's the simple fact, or they're not right for the business, um, so they're not generating the right return. So it's, it's, a, it's an error that's across the board. It's not just a matter of, um, as I often hear, our oh, fees are too low, just increase fees because expenses have gone up. There are huge numbers of clients that are paying a lot more than mm. what they actually should be as well. So it goes the other way. Certainly. But I stand by I stand by that statement, and and it's well supported through the evidence that we have established and maintained mm, to this so day. Over ninety percent, and an issue that's obviously getting worse. Um, Neil, you're in the trenches with advisors, and listening to Rob's assertion there, I'm interested to know what you think uh, the common pricing mistakes are, and whether you agree with you know what 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 Rob's observing there. I think Rob's observations are based a lot on uh, on a comparison against the methodologies that he puts into place with planners. I think in the main, I'm seeing advisors uh, progress really well in terms of, of appropriate pricing. I would suggest, though, it's there's still a ways to go. 
from a licensee perspective, we don't mandate uh, one way of, of determining a price point for a planner to use with their end consumer. Uh, we operate on a principles base, uh, basis with our planner base and, and we say, of course, fairness needs to uh, be one of the key criteria that's met initially, which means fairness for, I think as Rod puts it well, for the client and fairness for the practice such that it's a sustainable pricing model. Um, we're seeing uh, a lot of work being done by planners, and that's been a lot of work over a considerable amount of time now to get the fairness piece correct in the pricing methodology that's used. Uh, if I reflect on this business, about 85% of our practices today have moved away from traditional industry-based, fund-based pricing models to other methodologies to sit down and accurately reflect, uh, you know, an adequate value transfer and pricing model for clients which I think is, uh, is, is a positive for, for the industry. But I, I, I do concede that Rob's correct in asserting there's still more work to go. Mm. You mentioned there a principles-based kind of approach um, that the licensee yep. takes with the advisors. Tell me more about that. Is that, uh, is that a sort of a set of guidelines that you give or is it a, a sort of uh, a bunch of support measures that you have for advisors in place? Yeah, no, it's, it's principle-based guidelines in terms of, of uh, really meeting the obligations around best interest for the client. Um, you know, we have an overriding obligation to act efficiently, fairly and honestly. Uh, that's a corpse law obligation. So how we try to articulate that in our policy settings is, well, what's a tangible uh, um, evidence base that supports that principle? And when it comes to pricing, there has to be a fair transfer of, of a return outcome. So to give you an example of some of the guidance we would provide, uh, we wouldn't want to see a circumstance whereby clients can't possibly get uh, a measurable return on their investments in circumstances where the cost associated with delivery of that advice is too high. Mm. Uh, so we put those sorts of caps, collars, if you like, on, on the operating model. We don't, though, go as far as to say um, you can't charge more than $150 per hour. Sure, uh, we're sure. not anywhere near that prescriptive. As I said, it's principles-based. We don't see it's our place to determine um, whether someone's worth $150 an hour or $200 an hour, uh, but we certainly do see that we have an obligation to make sure that uh, there are appropriate value transfers and not excessive value transfers in cost structures to clients. Sure. Just a quick one. I wouldn't ask you to speak for the industry itself, but if you you sort of, when you're speaking to other licensee executives, is that a, a common way of approaching the, the licensing um, landscape yeah, with advisors? It, it is, um, particularly in the, well, I guess, inverted commas, the IFA space where you're dealing with practice owners that are in themselves creating value proposition and pricing that suits that value proposition. If you're running a salaried business model, of course, that's very different because you've got one way to do things. Uh, but in a traditional dealer group style structure, uh, most take the view that there is a, you know, a pricing principles approach rather than a prescriptive process around that piece. Certainly in my experience, uh, having run licensees for a long time, that's been a pretty consistent approach adopted uh, for, for a number of years. Now, I think like everything where something breaks, uh, you generally put some controls in place to prevent it from breaking further. Um, but I don't think uh, I know too many that have gone to, to really prescriptive processes yet. Sure, and, sure. But if I can just interject, and with great Thanks. respect to Neil and other licensees, 
most licensee models themselves aren't right at a pricing point. So I, I'm not sure licensees are always best placed to provide too much guidance to um, to their firms. And I can see Neil smiling there. But look, it, it, it's it's a true fact though that that there are so many variables now and so many different inputs. And return is not simply a return to show ASIC that hey, I've given the client a return and it's based on you know, justifying a fee because return and value to client is something that we're doing a lot of work in and it's total and it's different. Every single client is different. Not every client is there simply to get a financial return. There, if, if we understand as advisors better why clients need to invest in themselves and their form of financial security or financial success, financial well-being, financial philanthropy, financial whatever that happens to be, um, then I think we're going a long way towards understanding the value that we provide. And I believe a huge part of why clients retain their advisor is because they're investing in themselves. And, and that's what we're trying to turn the tide on. Yeah. We can price we can price all the moving parts easy. You know, all the mechanics of it aren't too difficult at the end of the day. Um, but until advisor, advisory practices actually understand their own costs better, Tarnan, are able to actually isolate out what, a profitable business model actually looks like. That's the first step in, in understanding how to put a pricing framework together and then you can, you know, deal with all the other bits and pieces. But it's a really complex complex piece of work. It's not a simple case. Okay. Just like a switch. And I don't care for the pricing methodology. I never have, whether it's percentage-based mm. or fixed fees or whatever it happens to be, as long as there's a basis to actually illustrate that individual client to tease out exactly the set of circumstances, problems to be solved, issues to discover and overcome for that client for the next 12 months. That's the most important thing here. Then you can put a price on that and so make it profitable. Without giving too much away about sort of your own methodology, Rob, down at uh, Peloton Partners, how, how do you look at it? If you're not looking at uh, funds under management as a percentage and you're not looking at a, a fixed fee per se, it sounds like you're more so pulling apart all the different elements of the value proposition and, and, and putting a price on that. That's exactly what it is, Tom. So I'll give it all away. It's not a hidden thing. I never made it that. I, I, I often show people exactly how we do it. And it takes takes us a long time to do it. That's the other side of it. Mm. You know, we're considered so-called experts and yet it still takes us months to put a proper, progressive, logical pricing framework in front of an advisory business, convict them all behind it so that they understand the mechanics of it, the why of it, they can see and test the fairness and the return fairness to the client and return to the business. So it takes months. That's the first thing I want to say. But the only way we can do it is we do we do it three ways. We need to pull apart the financial history and performance of the firm. We need to understand how it's actually how how it's how it's fared this last five years in particular, at least over five years, to get an understanding of what's gone inside. And let me tell you what's happened inside the average business out there. Expenses have gone up and revenue's gone down and worse. Um, you know, no one seems to take that five-year view. Where was I five years ago during some buoyant times in the market to where I am today to understand what your business has actually done during that time? And what's happened, and I can guarantee it, is most firms are actually investing in what they think are efficiencies in the back office, better technology and all this other stuff, more people with the hope that that's going to result in an outcome that improves their business financially and it doesn't on average that's the scary thing mm-hmm. so I, i'm so, so one way is to understand and accept the status quo around the financial trajectory and history of the business the second bit is the elasticity and capability of the firm around the services that they can provide i used to think naively that most financial planning practices were pretty much the same they could do the same thing they're in the same space same levels of education and 
so forth that are now being normalised. Let me tell you the variances and variability between the elasticity of service and the depth of service is extraordinary across this country. And, and I, I could go on and on and I won't just to give you examples of just how different some firms really are. So understanding service elasticity, service depth is the second part of what we try and uncover because we're simply trying to pair the value that that firm provides to that set of clients to solve that set of client circumstances. And the third and most important step after financial and after elasticity of service is to go very, very deep on individual client profiles. You know, I get annoyed about this notion of, you know, most pricing models that I see are sort of flexed still around the notion of how much money someone has to invest, right? Whether you, whether they've converted to a so-called complex model that's, you know, gone a bit deeper than that or not, they still functionally sit around size, with size being the, the, the leading, you know, reason that a client should be paying more or paying less. When you say size, you're referring to investable oh, sorry, assets? Fun, primarily funds under management, yep. I would say. And yet the layers of the client profiles and the issues of the client profiles are quite extraordinary. And we put up a classic case of 15 clients as part of our testing process to show 15 clients of what they're presently paying. And then we show the, the decisions the advisors have had to make when they've gone deep on service proposition, service um, elasticity, and those the same decisions are then reflected in price, and it's extraordinary. Yeah. Some of the clients at the top paying the most should be paying mid or low. Some down the bottom are the same. This is this variability in why pricing. It's not just about a methodology we put forward. It's about an unaccountability of profit per client, a misunderstanding of client profile complexity, and a mismatch in pricing sure. frameworks that yep. deliver to it. We've actually had a... Um, I want to sort of put some topical ideas in there at the moment. We've had a uh, an advisor exodus over the last few years. You'd both be pretty familiar with that, and a pandemic, which has both sort of put pressure on um, on pricing. So demand has increased, which has increased the cost to serve. Um, so the price has gone up dramatically. The price of advice, uh, so much so that ASIC conducted a project into access to affordability uh, of advice, and that that project sadly is now with Treasury. But the question I have is. Is it dangerous to raise prices arbitrarily without sort of robust analysis uh, simply because you can? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, you have to always keep the alignment between the value transfer to the client and the price that you're charging for those services. And not, not being able to substantiate that piece is a dangerous territory to step into. Uh, I'll just add to some of Rob's comments. Look, I think uh, this industry... A lot of its construct historically has been based upon cross-subsidisation models, whether it be subsidisation, cross-subsidisation that occurred in the value chain. Many advisory practices have benefited that historically for a number of years, where cost to client has in fact been coming down, but their proportion of, of revenue against the total of value cost to client has increased. And it's masked in somewhat a degree of inefficiency in a lot of financial planning practices. Move ourselves forward now to the bank exodus from wealth, where there's, where there's another layer of subsidisation that was in the operating model that involved licensees that no longer exists. You've now got a more realistic or true position of the costs within financial planning practices. Add to that the additional costs that have resulted from an increased level of, of compliance-related process that advisory practices have to undertake to be able to do their job effectively. And you get a cost increase, and but now you're seeing advisors start to look at that cost increase or total cost 
and realise that there is another layer of subsidisation that they have to account for, which is the subsidisation within their practice, where client A is paying too much, as Rob describes, and client B is paying too little. And that's another form of subsidisation that I think is starting to work its way out. And I, I would actually argue, uh, Rob, that there is quite a degree of progress now in a lot of planning practices around that better understanding of true cost to serve. And, and therefore, they're starting to frame pricing models very much to that individual requirement more so than to that um, historically cross-subsidised model. And I also argue the licensees that have also grown up in that sense in the marketplace and had to stand on their own two feet without themselves having subsidisation as part of their business model have also had to have a better understanding of genuine cost to serve and how that applies. I still think there's some ways to go there. Well, I'm glad you said that, Neil. It's nice to see you see you admit those things, and I totally <laughs> agree. You licensees need to do it yourself, and I think that's that's been well, well and truly proved. So, yes. I have done it. I, I violently agree with you, and to give you a plug, um, I, I think it's fantastic that you've employed some, some people at the practice management level to help you practice this, and I know that's what you've done. It's an important part of of where you're going. But look, all we're talking about is the same thing, aren't we? Professionalising yeah. this thing, yeah. moving these ridiculously pathetic models that have been in place that we inherited and we're just trying to make sure. I mean, I had an advisor the other day and, and it's sad. And he, you know what? He's an advisor for 40 years in, in a regional town and part of Victoria, uh, of New South Wales. And he says to me, Rob, you know what? I, I, I feel ashamed sometimes when I put a fee to a client. You know, and I just, it just rocked me a bit. And I thought, and I, I shouldn't rock me. I've been doing this a long time. But I just sat back and I just thought about him for a moment. Once I got to know him, he's been around for 40 years. He's looking to sell and transition his practice, Neil Tan, in three or four years' time. I know that sitting inside his practice as we speak is at least another seven to $800,000 of value that he's entitled to. And the only thing that's stopping him is this prejudice this thing I've got to do more and more and more for clients all the time, which is fantastic, and I, I love that attitude, mm. but he's doing less and less and less for himself. Uh, all we're trying to do is to rebalance this equation, and the economics around it are huge, right? Do, do you find, clients Rob, that uh, are advisors uh, a little bit reluctant to charge accordingly? Is there a sense of shame or some kind of uh, endemic feeling that, uh, that, they, that they don't want to take advantage of clients and charge too much, or, or perhaps it's that they'll lose clients if they charge too much? Well, it's even more dangerous than that, Tom. They, they, they don't even know whether they're making money on that client, losing money or making a huge amount or, or, or making nothing or, or it's going backwards. That's the problem. But that's perpetuated them with this gut feel of, oh, these clients are in this certain situation and I don't want to impose additional costs on them, even though I'm hemorrhaging and suffering myself. And that's just the brilliance of these people that we work with in this industry. Advisors are extraordinary in the lengths they go to and witnessing it every day because every single day that's what we have to do and, and my team are doing it as I'm talking to you, pricing the advice and the value and service that advisors are delivering to average clients across this country, not just average clients, all client profiles. And every day the same stories and the same um, attitude sadly sort of comes through that, one, I don't know. You know, if I ask an advisor, and Neil would agree with this, and it's one of the things I ask all the time, tell me about this particular client group. We'll, we'll call it the younger um, client group. Are you making any money on them? Are you making no money on them? Or is it basically flatline? And the answer is, I don't know. I think I have. Maybe I have historically. Maybe the projection or the trajectory of the fee has been positive at 10 years ago, but now it's in negative territory and going down and my costs are going this way. They don't even know to begin with. So we've got to solve that first. 
This episode is proudly sponsored by BlackRock. As a fiduciary to investors and a leading provider of financial technology, BlackRock helps millions of people build savings that serve them throughout their lives by making investing easier and more affordable. From integrating environmental, social and governance practices into its investment processes to creating positive impact by serving communities in Australia, BlackRock is dedicated to helping clients, employees, shareholders and communities achieve long-term financial well-being. To learn how BlackRock can help you and your clients, please visit the BlackRock Australia website. It's really interesting. Uh, younger clients you know, are often looked at as loss leaders in advice businesses. But I just want to touch on that, um, the sort of emotional and mental part of it. Uh, Neil, what have you seen in terms of uh, advice pricing if you're thinking about whether advisors are really too good for their own good and a little bit, uh, there's a sense of humility there and a sense of altruism and a sense of wanting to do the best by their clients to the, to the degree where they're not actually charging them enough because they don't want to. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I've seen an extensive amount of work done across this network to better understand the cost economics of delivery of that service. Uh, and I've seen uh, that result in advisors uh, running into two, two real issues. One is capacity. So they recognise the time spent to actually deliver the job in the way that they need to is larger than it was historically. So they have a limited uh, amount of, of client number capacity in terms of people that they can afford to deal with. And then, of course, uh, if you then take an economic measure on the business uh, at, at a first cut, you'd say, well, cut off the ones that are paying you less. Uh, and and that's, that's really hard for advisors to do, to reconcile that capacity and the relationships that they've had in, in many circumstances in, in, for a long period of time. And, uh, and those that have the capacity and willingness, of course, to pay for the value that the advisor is, uh, is representing to them. Now, we've had some, some interesting experiences across the network here in that regard where advisors have had to put fees up. And, uh, and they've done it with some reticence because of the long the long-standing nature of the relationship. They've done it in many circumstances, expecting the clients to select out because of the cost increases that are reasonable and validated in what they were proposing to their clients. Um, and in fact, they've been uh, surprised, probably positively, maybe uh, challenge in a challenging way, that clients have opted to stay in uh, the operating model because they value more so than the advisor ever fully appreciated the service and the value of the advice that they're actually getting. So it's a, it's a challenging one for advisors. Um, you know, we had one advisor that's actually just given a business, uh, uh, she sold her business much recently, she's come to work for Fortnum on, on the staff side. And she described uh, breaking up with 70 people uh, as yes. part of the process. These relationships are intensive and you add the monetary measure to it and sometimes relationships ending because the money value transfer isn't isn't equal and it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. It can be quite an emotional process. It's a relationship-based industry, of course. Neil, just while I've got you, the debate around fee-for-service or funds under management when it comes yeah. to pricing um, sometimes I feel like it's just really a rose by another name. I mean, you, if you're charging fee-for-service, you often look at the uh, the percentage of farm, you come to a figure and you call it a fixed fee. Is, is fee-for-service just funds under management but with a more palatable structure? Um, what do you think? I don't think it is the same thing, to tell you the truth. I, like, I think um, why people have, have moved or 
or sort of gravitated to a fee-for-service construct is they've looked at different methodology to determine what that price point should be. Mm. So whereas traditionally it might have anchored to a fund base, which was kind of arbitrary or traditional in terms of the, the approach, I think people are anchoring to different things now in terms of, of their basis for determining what the costs are and therefore what the profit number and the total price looks like beyond that. So I, I actually think they're different. Yeah. But I don't I don't have a view that people that are, uh, are somehow linking the value to the asset side is completely wrong either. And the reason that I think that is because uh, there is a risk inherent in delivery of advice to consumers. And somehow that risk needs to be a part of the pricing model. How you choose to do it, I think, is, is, is there's a number of different ways. But there is a correlation, for example, around the risk of larger portfolios and errors and things going wrong than there is in smaller portfolios. That's a fact of life. And, and, and a mechanism to recover some element of that risk in the pricing model, I think, has some, some merit in terms of an argument. Rob, is the fee well, versus fund this debate? Is a, this is a hot topic. Sorry, I need to just put in there for a sec. Um, <laughs> With your look, different look, view? <laughs> no, 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 Neil. Neil, you and I have had extensive conversations. Yeah. Mate. We, we, we know each other pretty well in that regard. But look, I, so so he, here's my view on that. And, and and I've you know I've had to restrain and change, and I have changed over time. I'm a, I'm, I'm a you know chameleon at times, but. You know, let's quickly on that for whole fee-for-servicing, I wish we'd drop the stupid concept of fee-for-service. It's ridiculous even talking about I do a fee-for-service model and I'm a fund model. They're fees, right? It's the pricing framework and what goes into it. And how about we just get over that and stop talking about it because it's ridiculous that we're still in this day and age and no advisor likes saying it, right? Because some advisors who still have a percentage-based fund model, do you think they're any less credible than an advisor with a fixed fee? Absolutely not. And and I and I object to that. But but at the same time, I do my models are essentially basically fixed dollar based ones that flex, right? So at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's just the methodology. But on to, on that on that issue of pricing risk, right? We all know anyone who has a PI policy in this country has an excess. The excess has a has a so so we're we're capped to a certain extent, right? And the notion that yes, we make some mistakes and yes, they are amplified. If you're making an error on a two million transaction versus twenty grand, I get that concept. But at the end of the day, the way PI and so the only thing we are factoring in in terms of a pricing model where there is some variability in terms of portfolio size, is it's a tiny amount. Right, so it's maybe five percent of the total fee pool would go towards what you, you would deem, Neil, perhaps a a fee for the risk of managing one portfolio versus another. In particular, if there's a size bias between those portfolios, but I basically cap it to the cost of the firm. And if the firm's paying a PI cost to their licensee or separately to an underwriter, that's X. That's the risk that's inherent in there. If they make any other mistakes in the back office, well, that's their bad luck. But but to the extent that we need to, to have a 30 40 50% basis point charge on thumb for the notion of risk, I think is gone in this day and age. And yeah. there's not too many clients that actually want to cop it. Have a look at some of these bigger bigger firms now that have traditionally been percentage-based fees. A lot of them are actually incorporating a, a notion of a fixed fee in there and reducing that sort of percentage base. So I know we're speaking for the same amount, but I'm talking about the tiniest of amounts should be applied to it and only if you really crystallise what that risk is in a monetary sense. Yeah, I wasn't seeking to quantify it and I agree completely with the argument. I think it even stands against the FASIA standards as they were articulated, where you have circumstances where you deliver the same service to a client with half a million, uh, you know, half a million dollars versus the same, another client with a million 
dollars of, of farm and you double the fee. I mean, that's, you know, we're clearly, we're talking Fair, about... Fair, reasonable uh, and represent value for money. That's the correct. other... Correct. It doesn't work, does it? Mm. So most advisors can't we're, get over. We're agreeing. What I'm not doing is quantifying, as you are, that level of premium. Yeah, but I'm the pricing guy. You're the licensee. I'm the pricing <laughs> guy. I have to quantify. That, that's why job. we've got you both on for that dynamic. Do you think that uh, it sounds like firms that don't offer flexibility or don't do a, a more of a robust analysis and the firms that sort of look at this as a really sort of binary fund versus fee-for-service are the ones that will be left behind and indeed the licensees that, that sort of look at it that way and don't offer guidance that's a little bit more nuanced might also be left behind now. Oh, look, I, as I said, I, I think this is a journey and I, I see our business in particular is very well progressed in terms of mindset around this and, uh, and moving very much in the right direction. Now, I'm not disputing Rob's analysis when he looks at the very detail of an individual practice. There's more work to go. But I, but I think that in the main, most have got this concept of change. Uh, I just think some have to do the work still to, to progress them down that, uh, down that path. Others uh, that have been sort of banging that same drum, others like ourselves that have, have worked with businesses like Peloton have seen much progress in this regard. Yeah, we seem to have come a long way from the standard 1%. Looking back, obviously, um, your MO, Rob, is to, to take a really granular look at pricing. But how do you feel when you, when you talk to advisors and they talk about you know, charging a standard 1% of uh, a client's investable assets? You know, I, 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 I did in my financial planning practice when I first walked into one. And, and uh, uh, as an ex-detective, I struggled with the concept of it because I couldn't forensically understand why this arbitrary fee should be applied. So I did it for years. So I'm very used to it. Then moved to a tiered percentage of fund. Then tried everything else thinking I was clever and smart. So I, I don't preach from any pulpit at all. I, I simply say, if you can prove that there is, and I can, well, actually, I can disprove the logic of having a standard uh, percentage of thumb type model. And I can, if I can backtrack that forensically into their financials and into the profit per client equation and point out the vast irregularities in profit per client, then I, I use the evidence, Tan, to win the battle, not the philosophical view or trying to be smart or modernised or whatever. I simply say, well, here are the facts. The facts are before you. You make a call. But if I can pinpoint one of your clients at 200% profit to you, making a ridiculous amount of money on them, and then there's another one with um, uh, 100% negative profit to you. Is that really the way you want to run your business going forward? And, and if that's crystallised to them, I have not had one firm, no matter how clever they are, no matter how prejudiced they are toward that model or a fixed fee for model as well, where that's pointed out to them and they've turned around and said, oh, oh um, that's a good thing, I'll continue the way I am. They've all gone, I need to fix that problem, mm. it's a problem. So when, when advisors come to you, what, what are the first things that you kind of see when you start your analysis of their business? What are the, what are the top line elements of a business that you're looking at? Well, one, they are, they are providing on average just brilliant service to clients, right? So I, I often, that's the first part that I start, start from. You get to so know people service. first before, yep. I, before I do any analysis. So just get to know the individuals, right? Listen to what they have to say about and how they go about treating people their staff. We actually do a cultural review as well before we even get to clients to see how well that firm has been able to treat its people to determine how well it treats its clients as well. So there's a lot of stuff there. But as I said to you before, Tan, it's, it's taking them through that sort of historical journey of where they've been. It's giving them a bit of a sense of perhaps the future. We know the settings in this industry, right? The macro settings aren't going to change. There's going to be further regulatory reform, whether we like it or not. But forget that for the moment. We've now got a much more educated consumer. That's been the biggest change since I've been in this industry 20 years. 
People are now questioning things and asking things. They're wanting transparency. Transparency is everywhere. So I say, why can't I have a conversation with Neil and Tan and I'd be happy to have a client, an end client of a financial planning practice, sitting on the end of this call, listening to what we have to say about them and about how fees are charged, about advisors go about their business, but then having them participating in their own fee crystallisation strategy. And so my first comment to an advisory firm is, if you want to work with us, at the end of the day, you are going to be showing clients everything, the amount of profit you're making on them for the next 12 months, exactly the areas of the service model that engages with them. And let me tell you, not every aspect of financial planning practice is a service. Let's get over this. I'm sick of advisors going, but Rob, my licensee is going to stress out if I show these 15 areas. They're not 15 service areas that are all deliverables that you need to validate to justify your fee, for God's sake. Some of them are the value of advice. Some of them are the education and training requirements of advice, the PI costs. Those aren't service inputs. They are necessary expenses required to deliver an ongoing service, for God's sake. So all I do is I crystallise the future for them as best I possibly can, and then I put to them a simple mathematical equation. I give them a valuation of their business as it presents right now, properly normalised without the scrutiny of, of um, you know, sellers of financial planning businesses um, that are going to tell you how great it is and then you end up getting a substandard result. We give them a bit of painful truth serum and then we show them, hey, this is what you will, will look like, guaranteed 100%, within 12 to 18 months, you've got a little bit of pain to go through. You've got to swallow some pride. You're going to have conversations with clients like you've never had them before. But I'll help you with that conversation. And Tan, you said it before and Neil said it as well, and he put it well when he said, speaking to firms, they're telling him that their clients, the clients aren't the problem. Mm. Clients are the easiest thing. The fact that we increase fees, and we also decrease fees, by the way, but the majority of the clients we deal with, all fees have been increased, mostly. But it has a 97% success rate. Why? Yes, it might be thorough. It's not because we're brilliant. It's because there is huge amount of inherent value that clients have been receiving that hasn't been talked about, that advisors have not been willing to stand up on the boards and say, hey, this is what I've actually done. And I guarantee you about clients, right? One, they're fairly robust. They get it. If they see the value, they'll pay for it. If they see the level of their investment and the return, which is not just a physical return, they'll pay for it. If they understand that, no issue at all. doesn't matter what the fee increase has been, whether it's doubled or tripled as it has in some of our models sometimes, they've paid for it. We'll, we'll talk about affordability later. But guess what they do? They forget the great advice moments that have happened to them. They forget what happened last year. They forget what happened 10 years ago. They forget that great tax strategy. They forget that great estate planning strategy you delivered. Part of what we do is to remind them. Yeah. So all, all we do is we convict advisors. That's it. And, I, and I guess... When it's transparent, they'll pay for it as well. That's a thing that they really do appreciate. We Neil, see everything. Yeah, absolutely. Everything. If you can, if you can validate what you're doing, then it makes it a lot easier to do, to, to stomach. Neil, how do the advisors feel about such kind of uh, a robust analysis? I'm sure that uh, at some stage you've kind of stood stood by advisors when they've gone through a complete overhaul of their pricing. Do they generally take it pretty well? Uh, well, we've had many embrace uh, the process in detail and and embrace it with Peloton. For example, uh, and and absolutely, I think the word that uh, that Rob used, which I think stands out for me, is it gives them a sense of conviction or, or or confidence around all of the component parts that sit within their business, and then their ability to articulate that effectively to their clients improves dramatically. So so I think again, it's a journey. Some have been well 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 down that path and out the other side. 
uh, and they've materialised significant change within their business, their business operating model, how they deal with the next client and what their financial metrics look like within their business structure to their benefit. I think some are still entering that journey board uh, and, and, and will continue to do so. I think it's a positive thing. Yeah. Well, a really interesting conversation, gents, uh, that I think is shedding some light on the challenges advice firms are facing with pricing. It'd be great to get a final comment, uh, Neil, on the key message for advisors moving forward. Uh, what, what should they have in mind when, when they're approaching a pricing review? I think, uh, you know, you start with the, the cost inputs that are about delivering it. Uh, you move from there to to uh, the value attributes, and I think Rob articulates that far better than I do in terms of of how you are how you quantify those. Uh, come up with a sustainable price model, sustainable profit. Obviously, financial planning is not a short-term transaction business. It's a long-term relationship business, and therefore you need to price for that longer term and make sure that you you have a viable business, sustainable to deliver into that longer time period. And I think the last part for me, which is critical, is is once you've done that work, have confidence in the value piece. At the moment, there's a demand supply imbalance. That may not always be the case, but have conviction around uh, around the value transfer. And I think it's uh, it's onward and upward from there. Yeah, having conviction in value is an important part of that. Rob? No, well, pretty simple, and Neil summed it up. But for me, it's for every firm, every firm, no matter their size, to establish a, a right. Establish a framework that crystallises a right and fair um, fee to a client, an individual client group, no matter what happens to that client group, no matter what happens to their future, no matter if there's an unplanned event that kicks in as well that can be factored into pricing, um, and that will deliver a right and fair return for the business. And then factor in all your business costs that change over time as well. I mean, this is simple. That is the simple message. That is fair. That is right. That means the equation of value and price and business valuation and income to them, everything is balanced when that is established and it's defensible, Tom and, and Neil, that's the most important thing. It's, it's, it's for the client to see everything, it's defensible, it gives the advisor a sense of purpose and confidence, as Neil said, with conviction that they do a bloody fantastic job for their clients. And if you want a definition of the value of advice in this country, and I've said this to ASIC and asked them, and they haven't done it, is go to any advisor have a look at their clients, pick out any one of their clients and ask them to take you on a history and a journey of that client through that business and you wait and see the response and, and sit back and hit record and listen to them. That's the value of advice in this country. It's absolutely extraordinary and I still get a buzz out of it having done it 20,000 times in nine years. <laughs> but that's what we all should be doing because it is amazing what advisors do for their clients, their knowledge, their intimacy about the family group, how they can predict certain outcomes what they've achieved for them, it, it, it's, it still blows me away. Very good. Yeah. Brilliant. Yep. Well, that's a good, uh, a good note to finish on. Thank you both again for joining us on this episode of Principles in Practice. I really enjoyed leaning on your collective expertise today and I uh, thank you for your time, gentlemen. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Thanks. Bye now.